I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, the layperson's guide to enjoying music's benefits. For more than 30 years, March has been officially designated as Music in Our Schools Month by the National Association for Music Education. This is the month when music education is the focus of schools across the nation. In recognition of Music in Our Schools Month, today's guest is John Benham, author of Music Advocacy, Moving from Survival to Vision. He has been in music education for over 40 years in elementary through university levels and has a doctorate in education. His area of expertise is building, saving, and restoring music programs. His advocacy work and methods have saved over $70 million in proposed music cuts, equivalent to approximately 2,000 teaching positions affecting 500,000 music students. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Could you start us off today by defining advocacy and differentiating between advocacy and lobbying? Well, my perspective is is uh, pretty much from the local situation where you're dealing with local issues. We're not a lobbyist. We're not working with the legislature. We're not looking at the, at the either the state or federal level. There are other organizations that do that, particularly the National Association of Music Merchants and the National Association for Music Education. I look at uh, a lot of that as simply political power and uh, putting the voter behind the thing that we're trying to support, in this case, music education. Uh, A lot of advocacy work is really, frankly, promotion or programming or talking about how great it is for kids, which, of course, it is. My perspective as an advocate is somewhat, I think, like a defense lawyer. Um, I'm here to talk about how do we keep a program from being cut or getting on the cut list or how do we restore a program that has been cut uh, or how do we help build a program or what kind of information do we need and putting the public to work, which is where your voting power is. Okay. So when we talk about advocacy in terms of listeners' options for advocating for music, we're not talking about lobbying in the sense of affecting public policy at the national or possibly even state level. It's more public support for a certain cause or policy. Now, my experience has been that uh, people, when they get involved with their local school district, realize they have more political power than any other venue that they might be involved in Mm. because direct one-on-one. They're dealing with their neighbors and their power, and they have a a strong vote because the people they're working with are living in the same community, Mm. and so the impact is greater. So uh, it's immediate, it's visible, and it's hands-on. Okay. You talk about four key components to music advocacy. Is it possible to summarize each of those in like three minutes each? Uh, or less. Okay, great. Less <laughs> yeah. works too. No problem. I, I think what we have to realize is that when it comes to advocacy, uh, the key is, number one, having a, a music coalition. By that, I mean a group that uh, is actively involved weekly, daily, throughout the school year. They're representing all aspects of the music program. We're talking about every school represented, every grade level represented, and every constituent of the community represented. So we have basically four subcommittees in that music coalition. The first one is communications, and that's exactly what they deal with. For example, you should have a a member of your music coalition 
at a table at every event that you have for music, having people sign up for the Music Coalition. A lot of time we think it's a music group, but it's the entire community. And just to clarify, when you're talking about a Music Coalition, that's something that it's not a school-sponsored thing. It's something that the voters have put together on their own. Is that right? Well, it can certainly be a, a part of the school. There are two ways to do it. One is that as a part of the school, sometimes schools have oh, a, an athletic group or a music group or other things. Uh, but you can have it the other way, too. It's, it's either way or both. Oh, okay. A lot of times a music coalition is very effective when they establish themselves as a 501c3 mm. district. And uh, it, it gives them a, a more, I think, a community-wide perspective than a in-school organization does because that tends to be limited, we think, to parents, whereas we want to involve the entire community. Mm, okay. So the different components of that coalition are communication and what else? The administrative liaison. This is uh, somebody's at every school board meeting. This is a group that's electing school board members who understand the role of, of the arts and education. The third one is statistics and finance. These are people that assist in the development of budget proposals who maintain or help maintain statistical data related to the health of the program. And the fourth one is philosophy and curriculum. Now, a lot of times educators don't like parents involved as much, but what we haven't realized is that when it comes to the political structure in a school district, it's the parents that have the power. And the teachers only have power as it's given to them. Mm. So when push comes to shove, we need to have that voter support speaking for us. And part of this has to do with a lot of times the school board is perceived of as an arm of the administration, whereas legally the school board is an arm of the community telling the administration what the community wishes to have. Mm. So that's where you have to have your, your music coalition in power. As one superintendent said to me, there isn't any group more capable of raising rapid political fewer than a well-organized music coalition because we're representing all grades in all schools mm, okay. and also all areas of the music curriculum. So that's your first component. The second component of, of successful advocacy has to do with the music educator themselves. Too many times we hear about band, choir, orchestra, and general music, but we need to think of ourselves not as individual components of the curriculum, but as music educators in unified. This is oftentimes the biggest problem I have, is because when there's a crisis comes, we start protecting our own turf, mm. adult-centered issue, rather than protecting all of it for the students. Sure. We're yeah. most effective politically when we stick together. Mm-hmm. And that is the advantage of the coalition, because the coalition is already unified. So mm-hmm. oftentimes I'll say in a district, if I'm meeting with the public, how many of band teachers here, how many choir teachers, orchestra teachers, general music teachers, how many of you have parents here in athletics? Almost everybody stands. Mm. You have a student that's in, in band, all sorts stand. How many in choir? How many orchestra? Well, uh, we find that the parents oftentimes have kids in all three of those things, whereas the teachers have an individual area perspective. So we need to bring everybody together because our power is best when we're all unified. Okay. So the third component of successful advocacy is understanding the function and dysfunction of the decision-making and budget-making processes. And I'll of cover the school the, system itself. Of the system itself, yes. Okay. And then... Do you understand that process? And fourthly, do you have the right information to work within that process so you know what to do? And, and this has to do with the issue of uh, when a crisis comes, a philosophical approach doesn't usually work. So we go in and talk about music is great for kids, and, and we think it, music makes kids smarter, although there isn't any scientific data to 
causal data to demonstrate that. There certainly is a lot of collaborative data. And where we have all these philosophical things and, and the board administration agree with you. Mm-hmm. The problem is the crisis exposes their philosophy. They just don't realize it. Yeah, I was really intrigued by the video that I saw of you speaking about how you got involved in music advocacy. And it was a situation like this where you moved specifically into a school district in Minnesota because of their strong schools. And shortly after you moved there, they faced an $8 million deficit and were looking at cutting the school music programs. Right. And and what happened was I, I, as of course, having a doctorate in music education, assumed that I could write the best philosophical statement <laughs> the program had ever been written. I wrote two paragraphs and realized this was ridiculous because all seven board members had kids in music uh-huh. as did the superintendent. Uh-huh. They didn't want to cut music, but the crisis exposed their real philosophy, which was cut music first. Mm-hmm. So talk to us about the conclusion you came to about the best way to kind of phrase your argument. It was not a philosophical argument. It was really geared toward their financial argument. Right. Whatever the crisis is, you have to target your strategies towards that. So there, there, are, uh, there are two basic areas of, of crises that we find. One is educational reform. Uh, block schedule is a good example. And, and, and so if you look at everything from the uh, the issue of what is the impact of this potential decision on the student, you process things in an entirely different way. Mm -hmm. Whereas everything tends to be processed from the adult perspective because we're making the decision in our realm. Uh, Stated differently, I've asked over 30,000 educators now what is the mission of education. Almost without exception, they've told me the mission of education is to teach or educate children. And I say, no, that's not the mission. That's your role. Okay. And the The mission is? Student learning. Okay. So when you look at that perspective, it changes the whole way you process decision-making. So in that strategy, for example, block schedule, they come up with this innovative idea to assist and help all sorts of things. And after 60 years, there's no scientific evidence to indicate anything has improved as far as student achievement. But what we find, if you look at the student impact and the number of minutes per course that are offered with block schedule compared to, for example, a traditional six-period day, the student actually loses in eight weeks of instructional time per course. Hmm. But we don't process that. Once you point it out, oh, we never thought of that. Why? Because you solved the problem from the adult perspective, not from the student one. So that's the key thing. Now, the strategy that I used as I got into this, I realized I had to come up with something else. Mm-hmm. So there was a budget crisis. I needed to somehow undermine or discredit or disprove that the strategy they were taking or the decisions they were recommending related to the budget were fallacious. Mm-hmm. And as, as we did that, uh, I began to discover it all comes down to FTE. This is a little bit complex, but it's really very simple on the surface. Okay. FTE is called a full-time equivalent. Mm. So if we said that a 1.0 FTE teacher is five periods of instruction a day. We're talking secondary level now. And the administration comes up and says, well, there is what we call an FTE financial value. Therefore, the average teacher makes, let's say, $50,000 a year. I'm trying to use numbers that are easily mentally Mm -hmm. Then we would say that 1.0 FTE equals $50,000. Okay. So if we need to save... $300,000, we say, if we cut six teaching positions, six FTE, we have saved $300,000. Okay. 
we have now solved our problem. So the next decision is, what do we cut? Uh -huh. We could eliminate elementary music or instrumental music because we've got a classroom teacher and it's a full savings. Mm -hmm. What they don't understand is the long-term long impact of that, and we've discovered after 30 years of research, if you start instrumental music later than grade five, because of what we call in education the windows of learning, you'll lose about 65% of your enrollment at the secondary level within four years. In secondary, does that start at sixth grade, seventh grade? Sixth or seventh grade, it depends on the school system and how they lay that out. Okay. But we have found that, and I'm, I'm very confident that's in, in that statistic, almost more than any other that I've gathered. So now what we have is, uh, let's say we've cut six music teachers, okay, elementary music teachers, and we've, we've solved our budget problem because we just put those kids back in the classroom for that uh -huh. whatever year they cut. The problem is, our high school teachers have, let's say, and I'll use a specific district without naming it, have 210 students on their load at the secondary level. But your classroom teachers had only 125. Now, that represents then an overload of 85 students okay. for the teacher. That 85 students equates to three classes for the normal classroom teacher. Mm. So your music teacher is getting paid a 1.0 but is carrying a load of 1.6. Okay. Now, if you lose that position because you cut the feeder program or cut the teacher in themselves, you've got to hire, in the long term, 1.6 teachers to replace the 1.0 you cut. So another way of saying that is the music teachers are teaching 210 students each rather than the classroom teachers who are teaching 125 students each. Yes. So cutting one music teacher is sort of like cutting... 1.6 classroom teachers? Well, it ends up being that because you have to hire 1.6 teachers to replace the 1.0 teacher you cut. Okay. Because those music students that you cut because you cut the teacher's job have to go into classrooms. Mm-hmm. Either you've got to increase your classroom by a huge amount or you have to hire other teachers to replace them. Okay. So that 1.6 teacher is also carrying that 0.6 overload which, frankly, is paying for that elementary program. Sure. So there's sure. no financial justification to cut it. And is this what you call reverse economics? That's what we came to call reverse economics. And in every case we've ever been able to demonstrate over the last 30, how many ever years I've been doing this, 38, I think, we have found in every case that the district would have lost more money than it would have saved within, within a five-year period. Mm, interesting. So the district I just referred to, was going to uh, theoretically save 156000 a year by cutting the teachers they were cutting. And we demonstrated unequivocally that within five years, their budget deficit would be over half a million a year by making that decision. Oh, wow, interesting. So what happens, they take that 1.0 FTE then and, and they distribute it. Well, by law, you, d you cut the teachers who have the least seniority. Okay. And none of those are making the $50,000 a year. Mm. So you really save the 300000 you were aiming for anyway because you're going on a basis of financial accounting that determines average. So if I have a business, for example, and I've got 10 salespeople and I need to cut two positions in business, we find out which two salespeople really aren't doing their quota of work and we cut those. Mm -hmm. In education, we say, who's been here the least amount of time? And that may be your best two salespeople. That's why education ends up in so much trouble. They make budgetary decisions that are based on, well, as one accountant said to me in a public meeting, 
this goes against every basic principle of accounting. Okay. Now, you well, started doing this back in the early 80s. Do you see much change in how this appro- what kind of approach to take with the schools in terms of evaluating the FTEs and reverse economics, things like that? Has there been much change through those you know, 30, 40 years? Well, or are you still able to approach it in the same way now? It actually, we are, I've been more successful approaching it this way than any other way. And I would say that uh, our success rate, and I've worked with over 400 school districts now, uh, our success rate is approximately 95, 98% in saving music programs with this approach. I've never had a school administrator argue with it. Wow, wow. That's why they tend to cut the elementary program and not touch the secondary. They want to save those secondary music classes that may maybe average 40 or 50 compared to a classroom of 25 to 30. But they don't realize that when you cut that feeder system in the elementary, you're going to lose it to the secondary level anyway. It's kind of interesting to me that there's been that much continuity in how things are run within school districts across the country across 30, 40 years. Well, I worked in one district and uh, I got to this approach of the reverse economic thing and analyzing their district. And a gentleman in the back of the room said, stop. I said, What's the problem? He said, are you telling me that if they make this decision, they're going to lose $1.2 million a year? I said, you nailed it on the head. He said, you know, I'm a a CPA. And I've always thought there was something wrong with the way we did our budget processing and education. This goes against every principle of accounting. And as I say, I've never had an administrator argue with it. I've had all sorts of music teachers argue with me because they want me to prove it from a philosophical perspective. Mm, Sure. It's not that I'm philosophically against music. (laughs) When you're in a financial crisis, you worry more about balancing your budget. Sure, sure. No, your book, Music Advocacy, Moving from Survival Division, does that lay out quite a bit of these four key components to music advocacy that we talked about, kind of the how to put together a music coalition, things like that? Well, I I love to work with model airplanes and things. and, And I thought, you know, the thing to do here is put together a thing that says, here's step one, step two, step three, step four. So I take you through an entire process of understanding the school district. Um, What are those decisions made by your site administrator and your central administrator? For example, the central administration can say, here are the cuts and music isn't on that list. But one of the cuts on the list says, we're going to increase class size. Mm -hmm. Well, that means you're going to cut a teacher. It's the little site administrator, your principal, that makes that decision without having to tell anybody. And he could cut the whole music program and nobody knows about it. Hmm. So you have to understand that. Then we talk about uh, what are the uh, political issues, the responsibility of the school board, the various constituents. Uh, we talk about um, uh, the, the coalition, how to set it up. We talk about the whole process of educational reform. For example, I mentioned block schedule earlier. Mm-hmm. There's 10 pages just on block scheduling. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, uh, that, uh, basically the minutes from a, a district I work with who was going through that process. And then then there's a whole section on the reverse economics, understanding FTE, how to, to uh, take this public information survey and uh, come up with all the information out of it to save your own program. And we calculate uh, that roughly 50% of the programs have been saved, not counting the 70 plus million that I've worked with, uh, are probably close to 30 or 40% of that. So I get emails or letters quite regularly saying, hey, we just used your book and saved our program. Uh, 
Wow, that's got to feel really great. Yeah, it really is. I bet. Well, I ask all my guests to give listeners what I call an improv. Uh, try this at home, an experiment, a suggestion that will enhance listeners' lives with music. Do you have a recommendation today for us? Well, I think the first thing I would recommend to any school district is you need to have that broad-based coalition representing every school in the district and the community at large and every area of the music program working together as a single unit. It doesn't mean you can have a subdivision for band, choir, orchestra, and general music, but you need to have one thing uh, where they can come together in a singular or powerful structure to represent all the kids in the district. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking right now, if, if our, how, do, how do parents even find out if there is a current music coalition in their district? I don't know if there is one in mine. If you don't know about, there isn't one. Okay. <laughs> how, how do people become aware of it? The music coalition reaches out to all of the people in the district? I think the most common thing is a band boosters organization. And we'll find that a band boosters organization has all sorts of parents at all. So I have kids in choir orchestra. Uh-huh. My suggestion is that teachers begin to organize this. And there's some stuff in, in, in my book about that, too. There's also a book on parent boosters themselves uh, by GIA publications on, on organizing your, your band boosters or the role of band boosters. Okay. Uh, start with the parents you have and have them contact other parents they know and, and get the thing going. And then at every concert, you have that person sitting at the table that says, local music coalition, sign up here. That really becomes very effective. Okay. There is a resource on your website as well, too, that you had mentioned to me, the public school music participation survey form that listeners can download. Tell us about that. Sure, there is a, uh, it's under resources, I, under the resources tab, I believe, and you can just click on that and download it. You'll also find on there, uh, and this would be another good recommendation, is is a, a format for doing an annual report on your music program that you present to the board administration. Mm. I, and then how to use it, the instructions are right there with it. Okay, wonderful. And what is that website? Uh, www.save, hyphen, not underscore, hyphen music.org. Okay. And your other contact information is also on there, your email, phone number, things yeah, like that. A phone, all that stuff is on there. Yeah. Okay. And I'll include those links in the show notes as well as the link to your book. Sounds like a fantastic book. Uh, I have not read it and I will need to check that out. I also ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. What kind of a story do you have to share with us today? Well, I'm going to share a story about a, a program that was saved, actually. And I mentioned just a few seconds ago about the CPA that stood up in the middle of a meeting and said, stop, uh, and talked about this goes against every principle of accounting. Well, I was uh, at the Midwest Band and Orchestra Clinic in Chicago a few years ago, and I go there every year and just am available. And a gentleman came up to me and he said, do you remember me? And I said, well, no, not really, but named the district, and he told me where it was. And I said, oh, yes, now I remember you. <laughs> and uh, he said, do you remember you came and we were losing our whole fifth and sixth grade band program? And I said, yes. He said, well, you know, we saved it with your help. And I said, yes, I remember that. He said, well, have you ever seen the movie Drumline? Well, I said, yeah. He said, all those drummers are the kids you saved in fifth and sixth grade. Aww. So I felt, well, it, it's it's worth it, isn't it? Wow. Wow, I have I've heard of that movie, but I haven't seen it. I'm going to have to add that to my list too. <laughs> yeah, well, if you get to the end of the movie, you'll see the credits. There's a, the high school is actually named. 
Okay. And I think one of the other episodes, that movie came up. I was interviewing the University of North Texas uh, band director, and we were talking about the value of the drum line and how it affects the athletic experience of games. And uh, I think that movie came up then, too. Wow, that's really, really special to know that connection. Well, thank you so much for all that you do on behalf of music programs across the country. I think you also work in Canada, too. Is that right? Yeah, I've worked in six different Canadian provinces. Okay. Are there schools set up somewhat similar to those in the U.S.? The financial process is that their schools are, at least the last few times I've worked up there, they run their performance programs outside the school day, and then they run classes like music theory and music history during the day. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for all you do to enhance lives with music. Thank you for your time and your expertise today. Really appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. I really appreciate what you're doing too. You know, the more people we have talking, the more people are here. As always, all links discussed in today's episode can be found in the show notes on my website at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 32. There is also a link to that page in the episode details right in your podcast app. While you're there, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment on my website, mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast. Comment on social media. I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Or send me an email at mindy at mpetersonmusic.com. I'll be back next week with very practical information on accessing the full benefits of playing a musical instrument, even for those who face obstacles, including physical mobility, scheduling and transportation, rural geographic location, and other logistical challenges. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music. One of the great things, and I, you can cut out the commercial if you want. Sure. Schmitz is one of the stores, and there are others. It just says, I have a carte blanche for the, automatically for the first X number of dollars for any district that wants help. Ah, so, that uh, doesn't you know, surprise me. They're well, an incredible company.